Our scripture reading is from James 5, 19 and 20. My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to Christ. Thank you again, Carol. Hello, everybody. Uh, If we haven't had a chance to meet yet, my name is Scott, and uh, like Derek, I'm one of the pastors here, and it usually uh, usually falls on me, the privilege does, of of, uh, unpacking the Scripture for the week. And uh, today is our last message in our series on the book of James uh, that we've called The Ethics of Grace, and uh, next week we will begin our summer series that we're calling Limping Victorious how hurts can heal us. And so I hope you will join us or consider joining us if you have friends or family locally who are not part of a church family. Just invite you to uh, maybe look at at the summer as an opportunity to introduce them to our church family as well. We'd love to greet them here. Um, But for now, uh, for this week, for this last message of James, I want to start with a bit of a provocative question. Do you ever get tired of Christians? Do you ever get tired of Christians? So Anne Rice, who uh, famously wrote the Vampire Chronicles, uh, some years ago became a Christian and gave her life to Jesus Christ, became part of a church, became part of Christian community, made some Christian friends, and then decided on the basis of that experience that she would not quit Christ, but that she would quit Christianity. And here's what she said in an essay that she wrote about that. Today, I quit being a Christian. I'm out. I remain committed to Christ as always, but not to being Christian or being part of Christianity. It's simply impossible for me to belong to this quarrelsome, hostile, disputatious, and deservedly infamous group. For 10 years, I've tried. I have failed. I am an outsider. In the name of Christ, I quit Christianity. Now, On one hand, James agrees with Anne Rice that oftentimes the people of Jesus contradict their name, and they become a quarrelsome, hostile, disputatious, and deservedly infamous group. On the other hand, it's stunning, the last sentence of James' letter. Because up to this point, he's been giving them one rebuke and one reprimand after another for their character deficits, for the, the ways that they are using their tongues and, 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 and their speech and, and their, their, their behaviors in toxic ways that, that are damaging community and, and, and that are damaging them as individuals. It, it's, a, it's a letter filled with challenges and, 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 and confrontation. And then in the last sentence, where you may be expecting James to drive it home and put the nail in the coffin, he starts the last sentence with the word, brothers, my family, my siblings. And by the way, if you're family to the half-brother of Jesus, you know who else you're family to, right? You're family to Jesus himself. So he ends this with a strong hint of affirmation and receptivity and brotherhood. 
You know, James, I think, is one of those letters that helps us remember that we don't get to choose our family. It's not an option. You don't get to choose your family. Even when you think that you chose your spouse, you really didn't. I've shared before with with our family here at CPC that my wife, Patty, has been married to five men, and all of them have been me. We change over time. You know, our, our kid, maybe you've got a really low-maintenance baby, and then, and then later on, they become a very high-maintenance, you know, toddler. Or, or you've got a really high-maintenance toddler, and, and then in their teen years, they become a breath of fresh air. See, because we change. We're constantly changing. And so, so we really don't know what we're getting into when we get into a family commitment with somebody, Right? Because what they are today and what we are today is not necessarily what we'll be tomorrow. And so the defining mark of true family is this. You stay. You don't quit each other. You engage instead of hitting eject. You reconcile instead of rejecting. And, and, and that does beg the question, is distance ever legitimate? Is moving on ever a legitimate thing? And I think biblically the answer is actually yes. It can be yes in certain circumstances. Number one, if you're part of a church community that departs from biblical orthodoxy, it's time to move on. Or if you're part of a community where there is spiritual abuse happening by those who are in leadership and by those who have power, and it's unaccountable. You're in a situation like many of the people in the New Testament were with the scribes and Pharisees, who who used their positions of leadership to control and to manipulate, and, and sometimes even to abuse people that were under their leadership. Or if there's a situation in which the leadership has a strain and a pattern of hypocrisy without repentance and without responsiveness to character challenges like the ones that James faithfully gives in, in his letter. Otherwise, outside of these handful of exceptions, just like a family, just like a nuclear family is family, you get what you're given, a church is to be treated in the same way. Because if, if we're in relation, and especially the church with the big C, because if we're in relationship with Jesus, it's a package deal. You don't get to be my close, friends, my close friend if you reject my wife. You just don't. It's part of the deal. You, if you want to be close to me, you've got to love her too. And you know, if we identify as daughters and sons of the Father in heaven, we don't get to say, well, these aren't going to be my siblings. You may love them, Father, but I, I'm not going to move toward them. We don't get that option. If there's toxicity, if there's abuse, yes, distance is healthy. You know, safeguards, healthy. But if we're talking about irritating behaviors, if we're talking about situations where somebody's behaving offensively, but there is the capacity and the potential to recover that person, we press in instead of piecing out, James says. And that's what he's doing by referring to this annoying, disputatious, quarrelsome, hostile, deservedly infamous group of the first century church by calling them his own siblings. So what I want to talk about here as we land the plane with James is is essentially three things. The importance of cultivating 
the humility to receive correction. We all need to be able to do that. The courage to offer correction. And leaders who repent well and repent first. So first of all, humility to receive correction. So the fact that we are all still here at the end of a series on the book of James is actually a good sign. And that there have actually been, been little signs of, of a mature body of, of, of Christ followers along the way as we've gone through James. I've had emails, hallway conversations, even, even today after this morning, conversations of people saying, thank you, Scott, and thank you, thank all the pastors who've, who've spoken from this series for preaching the hard stuff. Thank you for not backing off. Thank you for not skipping the things that, that may sound offensive and off-putting, but, but, but for barreling through. When Russ Ramsey preached here two or three uh, weeks ago, kind of as his inaugural sermon as, as a pastoral, pastor on our staff, I got messaged, I got like three or four messages within 24 hours of, you know, th- please thank Russ for us. Please thank Russ for me, for hitting me between the eyes with respect to my relationship with money. Thank Russ for me, for reminding me that it's, a, it's very possible to have money and to have God. It's possible to have money and to love God, but it's not possible to love money and love God at the same time. It's, it's one or the other that's going to be your master. Please pass it on. Thank you for that very difficult message. So that's a sign of maturity when that kind of talk and conversation happens because mature followers of Jesus or maturing followers of Jesus Understand that as much as we want and legitimately need comfort from the love of God, we also need correction that comes to us from the truth of God. And oftentimes that comes through the vehicle of one another. But the truest sign of of the humble posture and the readiness to receive correction is a receptivity that's not just there as you hear a sermon where you can go privately without talking to anybody or being personally accountable, accountable to anybody, kind of deal with it yourself and on your own terms and on your own timetable. The real test of humility, and I've got to check myself on this personally, the real test is people who live with you and work with you and know you and who can call you out for being different in private than you are in public. As one of my friends said last week, for being, for being an extrovert with people you're not close to and an introvert with people that you are because you're exposed. The true test is our receptivity there. When somebody looks us personally in the eye, not for general rebukes, but, but with specific ones. And here's, here's the perspective that James offers in verse 20. Whoever brings back a sinner from wandering will save that person's soul from death. Or as it says in the 141st Psalm, let a righteous man rebuke me. It's kindness for him to do that. It's a kind thing for somebody to call you out for the unhealth that is in you. Proverbs 27 you know, it says something similar. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. You know, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, uh, in his magnificent book, uh, Life Together, says this. Nothing can be more cruel than the leniency which abandons others to their sin. And nothing can be more compassionate than the severe reprimand which calls another Christian back from the path of sin. Addiction recovery folks call this intervention. Intervention. 
loving another person too much to be silent about thoughts and words and behaviors that are harming the community and harming the person himself or herself. So uh, I was given a book a few weeks ago by um, K.K. Ray, who is part of our community here at Christ Pres. She's also a, a therapist uh, counselor in Nashville. She gave me this book called Breathing Underwater. It's by Richard Rohr, and uh, it, it, the subtitle is Spirituality and the Twelve Steps. And what Richard Rohr is doing is he's basically saying, here are several ways that there, that, that there is congruence between, you know, the little blue book and Alcoholics Anonymous and, and, and the Gospels. And one of the things he talks about in this book is what he calls stinking thinking. He, 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 he associates sin with addiction, and he says that all sin, like all addiction, is stinking thinking. It, it is, it's when we call things that are evil good, and when we call things that are good evil. When we call things that are healthy unhealthy, and we, when we call things that are unhealthy healthy. It's stinking thinking, he says. He says we're all addicted to our own habitual way of doing anything, to our own defenses, our patterned ways of thinking. You can never see or handle what you're addicted to. You cannot heal what you do not first acknowledge. And some form, he says, of alternative consciousness or a different way of thinking is the only freedom from our addictions or from our sins. In other words, the best kinds of intervention are those designed to help the addict to change his mind, to change her mind about the substance, about the drink, about the drug, about the damaging, harmful speech, behavior, and patterns of thinking. You know, this phrase, stinking thinking, reminds me of our dog. Our dog's name is Lulu, and because I am in my heart of hearts a dysfunctional enabler, I will allow Lulu to go two weeks when I should only really allow her to go two days without a bath because she gets into stuff, and I'm not sure what she gets into, but she stinks. And, and, and the thing about it is she's oblivious because she becomes so accustomed to her own stench that she thinks everything's okay and she's ambivalent to the impact of how she smells on others around her and on herself. You know, sometimes I want to open a conversation with my dog and just, just say, do, do you realize how many romantic opportunities you're missing with the dogs in the neighborhood? You don't even realize it. You need to listen to me because she gets really mad. She fights back whenever I try to cleanse her. And then I look at her and I think, she, she really is a parable of me, of my own stinking thinking, and, and of my own ability to turn my greatest strengths into significant weaknesses. You know, this, this happened to me a couple of weeks ago. I, I was in a conversation with a handful of the elders, of the leaders here at Christ Pres, and, and and, you know, one of my strengths, I think the people who are close to me would say, one of my strengths is, is that I am a visionary. I'm, I'm, I'm always thinking about how there can be a better tomorrow than today. That's what gets me going. That's what excites me of how can, can, can there be an even better tomorrow than, 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 than what there is today. And, and so we're in this conversation about a particular area of ministry that I would love to see progress. And it's going slower, a little slower than, than I thought. 
that it would. And, and, and I just, you know, kind of just unfiltered, let it out there. And, and one of the elders kindly and thoughtfully called me the next day and said, I don't even know if you realize this, but you were kind of an Eeyore last night. And, and it, it sort of took the air out and, 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 and uh, kind of felt like your inner golem was coming out. And it affected us. And, and I suspect it affected you because you seemed a lot more stressed in that moment than you usually do. And so I can do one of two things with that. You know, it's, it's one thing if one person critiques you and then everybody else around says, no, that's not really accurate. You know, there, there is such thing as a false criticism. But this was one where there was consensus. There were about five people who felt a little heavy about my Eeyore and my inner golem coming out. And so I can either just dismiss it and move on and pretend it didn't happen, get defensive, or I can say, okay, five people feeling heavy. I should probably pick up the phone and call each one of them right now and apologize. And also thank this one person for the favor that he did for me by intervening. Because that's what courageous friends do. They intervene. They don't remain silent when there is dysfunction. Henry Ford said it this way, my best friend is the one who brings out the best in me. But sometimes bringing out the best in somebody else requires us to lovingly expose the worst in them. So humility to receive correction. Value this redemptive process of correction, especially when we're the ones being corrected. But then the courage to offer correction is also part of a healthy spiritual family dynamic. If you intervene, it says in verse 20, you are suddenly a participant in something God is doing in that person's life. You, James says, are saving a soul from death. You know, part of our mission statement at Christ's Presbyterian Church is to follow Christ in his mission of loving people to life. Part of how we love other people to life is to take Gollum's fingers and pry them off of the ring of power that has so much power over him. And and because it has power over him and turns him into such a dysfunctional creature, it also creates problems in the community. And so loving somebody to life involves prying Gollum's fingers from the ring that will destroy. Pure love, in other words, will get angry sometimes. One of the greatest myths that that has ever been told about Jesus Christ was that he was nice. He was kind, but he wasn't nice. He was good, as C.S. Lewis says, but he was not safe, especially if there was dysfunction in the building. You remember how Jesus took a table like this and flipped it over in church, had a hissy fit in church because he was angry at something corrupt and dysfunctional that was coming out into the community from corrupt and dysfunctional people who were turning the temple into a currency exchange. Or you think about when Peter, the apostle, fell back into cowardice and, 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 and fell back into his former racism and started withdrawing from people who were ethnically other than him, from the Gentiles. And it says that Paul, in Galatians 2, it's right there, the whole story, Paul comes in 
and it says he opposed Peter to his face in front of everybody. As public as the sin and offense was, Paul, in love not only for Peter, but for the entire community, said, this is wrong. This is stinking thinking. And of course, Peter turned. Peter received it and humbled himself. If you love me, you will be angry at my sin because my sin is destructive to the community and it is destructive to me. Becky Pippert put it like this in Hope Has Its Reasons. We tend to be taken aback by the thought that God could be angry. We take pride in our tolerances of the excesses of others. So what's God's problem? But, she says, love detests what destroys the beloved. Real love stands against the deception, the lie, the sin that destroys. The more a father loves his son, the more he hates in him the drunkard, the liar, the traitor. Anger is not the, God, the, anger is not the opposite of love. Hate is the opposite of love, and the final form of hate is indifference. The final form of hate, in other words, is to just let it be to not enter into the messiness and discomfort of helping Gollum pry his fingers off of the ring of power. The final form of hatred is to not intervene when there's an addict in front of you. How do we intervene, though? That's incredibly important. Because in no way is, 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 is James saying you need to be shaming and punitive toward one another. Instead, the key word that he uses here is brothers. Remember, he's been taking them all to the woodshed for five straight chapters. And here, in calling them brothers, in the closing sentence, in conclusion, you're my family which says that the motivation here is to save and to cover, not to shame and expose and punish. Perfect example of this, beautiful picture of it, is actually the Corinthian letters, where you've got the truth and love of Christ through the Apostle Paul working together. You've got the fierceness of a lion you know, confronting the Corinthians, and then you've got the tenderness of a lamb you know, comforting and, 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 and pastoring those who are ashamed after, after having been called out. 1 Corinthians 13, one of the most famous passages of the Bible, famously known as the love chapter. We look at it as perfect, you know, wedding ceremony material. You know, love is patient, love is kind, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things, never fails, and so on. Uh, but, but it's really important. We've talked about this before. It's really important to step back and realize these lovely words about love, this vision for, for what real love looks like is not there primarily for wedding ceremonies or cross-stitch or cre cheesy Christian art. It is one of the sharpest rebukes in the whole Bible because it represents, this vision for love represents everything that the Corinthians were not in their thoughts, in their words, or in their actions. And the most odious sin that he calls out in his first letter to this church is their enabling behavior through silence because there is a man in their church who has seduced his mother-in-law. I'm sorry, his stepmother. And he's going to bed with her and it's, it's public news and everybody knows and everybody's remaining silent. Some are kind of snickering in the corners about it. But nobody's doing a thing about it. 
And it's as if Paul, if you read Paul's language, he's even more sharp with the way that the community is enabling this behavior than he is with the behavior itself. To affirm toxicity is to be toxic, Paul says. It's like handing, handing a syringe to a heroin addict. But then he says plainly and openly in 1 Corinthians 5, I hear that there's sexual immorality among you, and it's tolerated. You should be mourning over this. Remove this man from the community. Hand him over to Satan. But it's really important to get the motive here. Paul, Paul goes on. Why? That his soul may be saved. Purge the evil, in other words, to save the man. In other words, the end game here is not to get rid of him. The end game here is to recover him and get rid of Gollum's ring and throw it into the fires of Mordor so that Gollum can be loved back to life and recovered. But in 2 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians as some say, in 2 Corinthians, it's apparent that this man has repented now and he's sorrowful over what he's done and, and, and now he's in a condition of being overwhelmed with sorrow and guilt and shame for what he's done. Can you imagine what it would be like to, to walk into a church after the big red scarlet letter has been sort of put on you, right? But that's the situation. And, and what Paul says is this, now you have a new situation which requires a new response. And he starts 2 Corinthians with these words, talking about the God of all comfort, who comforts us in our affliction, who comforts us in our shame through his forgiveness, through his healing grace, so that we now may turn and comfort others in their shame and in their affliction and in, you know, in even the addictions and, and the destruction that they brought on themselves. We can comfort them with the love of God when they turn. When the kindness of God leads to repentance, that person should not experience shame and, 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 and distance. They should experience love and embrace from the community, Paul says. You know, in, in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, he explains the sharp tone of his first letter. He says, you know, basically, I know that it stung when I spoke to you this way, but you also need to know that it made me feel very heavy to have to write that letter to you. And here's a quote, I wrote to you out of much affliction and anguish of heart and with many tears. You know, toxic correction will put somebody in their place and pile on the shame, and, and, and who among us has not been culpable of that? Redemptive correction seeks to restore the person, and having been restored, to, receive, to relieve them from shame. To say to the man who used to get in bed with his stepmom, you are not the sum of your worst decisions and your worst mistakes. That's not what defines you. What defines you as one who's repented as a result of experiencing the kindness of God through Jesus, what defines you is that you are the beloved of God, is that you are a child of God, is that you, as James says, are a brother. You're a brother to me, James says, which means you're a brother to somebody else, much bigger and more significant than me. You know, Paul continues, as for this man, now that he has returned to his senses and returned to your community, forgive and comfort him, or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. Paul goes on, I beg you, I beg you to reaffirm your love for him. So you've got this, these, these two sides of the same coin at play. 
Paul, on the one hand, will afflict someone if they are comfortable with their sin. He'll afflict an entire community for enabling it. And he will comfort those who are afflicted by their sin. Lastly, leaders who repent. Leaders have to take the lead in this stuff. You know, in the Gospels, there's this, this account where, you know, Jesus is out, you know, doing miracles, preaching. His movement is growing. He's forgiving sins, making himself out to be God. And, and, and this is offending the religious establishment. He's, he's, he's confronting long-held traditions and calling long-held traditions into, into question. And, and of course, he's, he's, you know, popular to the, the non religious people, and and he's growing increasingly unpopular with people who are married to the traditions. And so his family's embarrassed. And they're like, Jesus, just come home with us, will you? Just come on home. Come on home. And, And James is part of that. James is part of the family. But now, here we have James, some years later, after the death, burial, and resurrection of his big brother, calling him Lord. Master, king, ruler. So even James, as the leader, is taking the lead. He's leading with humility, leading with a limp, as Dan Allender says. You know, those who are in positions of power, those who are in positions of leadership, whether you're talking about in churches, in organizations, in homes, have the luxury, which really isn't a luxury, have the luxury of choosing whether or not they're going to receive and respond to the correction. The best parents, the best pastors, the best organizational leaders are not the ones who are perfect, are not the ones who don't make mistakes. They are the ones who say, I'm sorry. They're the ones who repent First, the best pastors are not immune from hypocrisy. My friend Josh and I went out um, just for a conversation together on Friday afternoon, and Josh says, how are you doing with living out the sermons that you preach? And I said, you know, if you want me to be honest with you on that, I've never lived out a single one of my sermons, except for the last point of every sermon, which has you and has me running to Jesus for grace and mercy for the hypocrisy that is still there and will be there forever. This is what real leadership is, and this is what James demonstrates. Paul demonstrates it in Romans 7 when he talks about his coveting, you know, at the end of his ministry when he calls himself the chief of sinners. This is what Peter demonstrates when, when he's confronted with the holiness of Jesus and says, depart from me because I'm a sinful man. It's what Peter does when he affirms the letters of Paul, including Galatians, which talks about how Paul called Peter out in public. You see this humility going on. You see it in Isaiah. Woe is me, a man of unclean lips. That's what qualifies you to lead. Whether you have a position of leadership or not, you are a leader if you are a repenter, if you are one who knows how to say, I'm sorry, if you are one who knows how to say, forgive me, not only to him, but to one another. You are a leader. It doesn't matter how old you are. 
You know, there's some 85-year-olds who are terrible leaders, and there are 8-year-olds who are magnificent leaders. Humility is the defining mark of somebody who is qualified to lead. Evangelist Dwight Moody was once giving a message to a crowd of hundreds and hundreds of people, and, and, and he was interrupted in the middle of his talk by a cocky young seminary student who was trying to catch him in his words and was a little bit snarky with him. And what Dwight Moody did was he snapped at the young man, put him in his place swiftly, got a little bit of applause from the crowd because everybody in the crowd knew and believed that this kid got what he deserved. Moody continued with his lecture, he continued with his talk, and then he stopped himself and he said these words, friends, I have to confess before all of you that at the beginning of my meeting, I gave a very foolish answer to my brother down here. I asked God to forgive me and I ask him to forgive me in front of all of you. And then that evening end ended with the two of them, Dwight Moody and the young, cocky, weeping seminary student, embracing each other. And this is true leadership because Moody had all the power. He didn't have to apologize. He could have stayed on his high horse but he didn't. Instead, he set aside his power in order to humble himself in a way that would lead to an embrace with the one who had offended him. Does that sound familiar? Have you ever heard of that before? What gives Moody, what gives James the emotional wealth to be the first repenter? The emotional wealth that he has is is what he has already received from the preacher with the capital P who never did anything wrong, from Jesus who humbled himself, made himself nothing, became obedient to death on a cross. And that cross comes with a message, a two-part message. You are infinitely worse than you think you are, and you are infinitely more loved through Jesus than you ever dared to hope. And that's what leads us to be able to have the humility to receive correction, the courage to offer it, And to lead, whether you're 8 or 85, with humility and repentance. 